Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast and it's powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. My guests today are Chris Conway and Shea Odukogbe. Chris is the group chief executive of TransLink, keeping the trains and buses and coaches running across Northern Ireland. He's also on the board of Business in the Community, the Prince's Responsible Business Network. Shea is co-founder of transport and mobility data platform, RouteMasters, and he's also the founder of Cycle to Class, an initiative providing bicycles to young children in sub-Saharan Africa. Today, we're going to explore the future of travel, a cleaner greener future, no doubt. We'll talk about the benefits of cutting time and stress from someone's daily journeys, all the more relevant during a national lockdown. And we'll think about the importance of listening and not being afraid to ask for advice. Let's get to the conversation. Chris, Shea, welcome to The Lens. Hello, Ollie. Hello, Ollie. Thank you for having us. Let me start with you, Chris. Your first ever job, I ask every guest this. So my first ever job as a teenager, uh, I worked in a kitchen in an hotel at the evenings and weekends, uh, and that was prepping vegetables. Uh, and I took a very important skill from that that I still have to this day, and that's how to peel a good potato. Uh, I, and that's uh, that's the first skill I learned as a, as a teenager. I think that's very important. When the chips are down, that is yes, exactly. Important. I can see a connection already. I mean, I'm not supposed to jump between my guests, but Shay, let's get your first job out of the way. This is very interesting, right, Chris? Uh, my first job was also working in a kitchen as a kitchen <laughs> porter in a football club. Um, you know, so uh, Western Football Club, actually. Um, and and I, I first worked as a as a kitchen porter and then advanced to being a waiter. Now, Chris, tell me, if we tell the young Chris Conway that he will go on to be a high-powered chief executive, what does that teenage boy say? Well, as, as a teenager, I would say I was quite a quiet teenager, um, maybe even a little bit shy. Um, so I would probably be quite surprised at that. Uh, it probably took me till my twenties before I started coming out of my shell and and realizing, uh, um, you know, that I I could speak up and I could challenge things. Interesting. Mm. Well, we'll hear more about how TransLink keeps the buses and the trains and the coaches running, but I want to do a bit of a whistle stop. You spent significant time within what I think of as big tech companies, Nortel Networks being one of them. Tell me why transport. I did a degree in engineering, and I suppose I really thought that you know I really wanted to design, be a great designer. I went into a very interesting department, which was called Future Projects, and the first company I went into, and it was very much you know very academic and very research and development focused. And I realized very quickly that that wasn't really for me. And uh, I enjoyed the end of the uh, process where you actually turn the design into a manufacturable product. And we call new product introduction. And I left the company I was in and went to the telecom sector and eventually ended up with Nortel Networks and very much doing that new product introduction work. And when you're in that type of role, you're working with lots of different departments. You're working with manufacturing, with marketing, with sales, uh, with supply chain. And I eventually went and worked in all those departments and, and traveled the world really with uh, with Nortel and, and learned from some really tremendous leaders. And I'd done that corporate role for a long time. So I'd done it from my 20s well up until my 
uh, given away my age here, and I well up into my 50s, and I spent 20 years in, in the telecom sector. And um, I always had an inkling that I wanted to do something in my local community in Northern Ireland. And I did start getting involved in some voluntary work and some charities and board work with local voluntary organizations. And the opportunity came up with Translink, and I thought that would be interesting. And I took the opportunity and joined an organization with a fantastic group of people. It sounds like there's a refreshing amount of serendipity there. It's something that uh, the opportunity presented itself. Um, would you say, Chris, that given I see you as a cross-sector leader, you know, TransLink effectively, am I right in thinking government-owned? You run it as uh, any well-run organization, but essentially government-owned? Yes. So my question to you is, to what extent is leadership always leadership? Or are there certain new rules that apply when you change sectors? I think leadership is leadership. I find I've moved across a couple of sec different sectors and, and I've worked at, at board level with uh, voluntary organizations as well and charities. Leadership is the same and all the companies I've been in. It's very much about developing people. It's about setting direction uh, for the organization. It's about knowing your customer. The bit that I find interesting working across different sectors is a lot of the time as a leader in an organization, you're solving problems. And, and when you work in different organizations, you see people and you experience different ways to solve problems, maybe the same problem, but a different way of looking at it or a different perspective on how to solve a problem. Surely there is a piece of candid advice you would give to someone crossing the threshold into a government-owned organization that says that the rules are a bit different and here's what you need to know. Let, let's just cut to it. We're run very much like a private organization, um, but we've got those different environments that we're in. Um, in the public sector organization, you're owned by government, your main shareholder is government, so um, it means that accountability around governance is much higher and you have a lot of stakeholders. You know, you've got devolved government here in Northern Ireland, we've also got local councils, we've got committees, we've got interest groups on both business and, and transport uh, and to a certain extent as CEO, I'm accountable to all of them. Let's dig a bit more into TransLink. Uh, you're looking after one and a half million passengers a week in normal times. That would include getting 55,000 school children safely to school and back. Just remind us how you do that. Take us take us onto the ground. Well, TransLink's the public transport provider for Northern Ireland. We provide all of the rail services, all of the bus services, both urban and rural, uh, and all of the interurban coach services. Uh, and we're a fully nationalised organisation in that we're fully vertically integrated. So we also manage all of the railway infrastructure, all of the maintenance of all of those signals and tunnels and bridges and, and all of that. Uh, and we also manage all of the um, stations, all of the bus stations, train stations, engineering garages, and also all of the technology. So all of our ticketing, all of the sort of online journey planners and timetables, all of that's all managed by TransLink as well. So fu fully integrated in terms of do that. And what would you say is the number one leadership lesson you've learned, particularly from lockdown over the past 12 months? It's an old one, but it's communicate, communicate, communicate. You know, um, one of the big challenges we had during COVID-19 is the amount of change. You know, we've changed our timetables about twice a year. Um, we've probably changed them now coming up six to seven times in the last nine months. And, you know, making sure all the bus drivers turn up at the right schedule and all the train drivers turn up for the right train and everything else, doing all of that and communicating all of that internally. But also we, we had a lot of staff who aren't frontline staff working from home. And we wanted to make sure we were communicating what was happening in the organization. We wanted to make sure we looked after people in terms of their mental health and their well-being. So we, we put a whole suite of internal communication in place for people. We completed in the last nine months, we created an employee app 
so that people could get access to what was happening in the organization at any point in time. So, and then communicate with the passengers as well about what we were doing and making sure they had access to the latest timetables and everything else. And how has your personal communication style evolved to step up to those challenges? I've probably had to do things I, I wouldn't have said it was necessary in my, my core skill. I would have done a chief executive email once once a week uh, and we also then did a sort of monthly focus uh, for employees and we put those up on our website and I would have done employee forums where we would have met face to face and done all of those things. Obviously we weren't able to do that so we did. We started creating podcasts. We've done videos. I've started doing videos for my own mobile phone that gets sent to all employees. Um, and, and the same even for external stakeholders as well. We've created videos and, and put them up on social media and put them up on our website and sent them out to people by email. I've done Teams calls with maybe two or 300 people on them. They're all very um, scary things the first few times that you do them, you know, a very different way of communicating. Well, it's all quite humanising, really, isn't it? That's the simple fact. You go from yeah. being the chief exec in the, in the ivory town not that you were that but to someone hugely relatable let's shift gear chris tell me about the future of transport in broad terms but particularly i want to know in northern ireland you know everything that you talk about as a chief executive as an organization suggests to me it's going to be greener give us a sense of where we're going COVID-19 has been a very challenging experience for us all and, and will continue to be for some time. But if you think of time over, overall, it's still going to be a relatively small period of time. But when you think about climate change, climate change is something which is going to have a massive effect for generations to come. And, and it's something that we, you know, I feel we have a huge responsibility to, to do something about in, uh, now. Uh, and certainly transport is one of the areas which has had the, the least impact in terms of reducing carbon over the last decade. I mean, a lot has happened in the energy sector, but not so much in the transport sector. So we are very much focused in certainly in TransLink and, and in Northern Ireland to decarbonise public transport in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, and we set ourselves a target to do that by 2040 or as soon as possible, really. I don't really like these targets, which are way far out. You know, we want to do it as soon as possible. Uh, and, and we've started that journey now. In 2018, we introduced our first bus rapid transit system in Belfast. So rather than the large investment of a tram system, we introduced a tram system, but it's it's, it's a large articulated vehicle, uh, hybrid vehicle on wheels, but with um, bus prioritization right through the city. So it has a dedicated route through the city. And when um, you say hybrid, what's the other half? Is it electric? Yeah, it's electric, electric diesel. It can work on a system whereby within the urban environment, it works on electric and then and then the diesel kicks in uh, to charge the batteries and uh, when it's outside the urban environment. So a very eco-friendly vehicle. And we, we increased passenger numbers by about 30% just by introducing that technology. Chris, when you say you increase passenger numbers, why? Because it was more comfortable, it was more accessible. What, what, what was driving the increase? Yeah, I, I think it was more accessible, definitely. It was more frequent, it was higher quality and highly reliable because it had dedicated lanes which allowed it to be more reliable. We've just ordered our first 100 zero emission vehicles. So these are vehicles, both, both battery electric and hydrogen vehicles and they'll be coming into service by the end of next year. Now, are we um, back on trains or buses? This is the first 100 zero emission buses. Um, and we actually have three zero hydrogen buses uh, came into service actually this month. Let me apologise to the listener if they're very well versed in this, but Chris, just remind us, what's so good about hydrogen? Well, hydrogen's completely clean. The hydrogen that we've sourced for the first three is going to come from a wind farm. So uh, basically, the, it'll be using an electrolyzer at a wind farm to produce the wind will produce hydrogen. The hydrogen will be put on our buses. And then when we drive the bus, the only thing that comes out of the back of the bus is water. 
basically. Uh, and it, it, so it's completely green uh, technology. And um, batteries are green as well, but there are some extra complications with battery, obviously depending on where the energy comes to charge the batteries, uh, it, it can, can, there can be some carbon involved in that. Um, and obviously you have the complication of recycling batteries and all, all of the environmental implications around that too. I so guess hydrogen is a much cleaner technology, although not as advanced as battery electric. And, and that's why we're, we're trying to lead the way to try and say, let's get hydrogen into our network. One of my concerns would be that in the wake of the, um, you know, the, the hammering that the economy has taken, um, all of this involves um, investment. And so I just wonder whether that has blown apart your plans. Um, certainly, you know, like all of these things, you have to sit back and reflect on our plans. But I, I, you know, as I said earlier, I think the climate crisis is even a bigger issue than COVID-19 in the long run. And I think if we've learned anything from COVID-19, you know, there was lots of warnings about pandemics years ago and they weren't properly heated, I would say. And we're learning some of those mistakes now. So I would hope that we don't you know, repeat that mistake with the climate crisis. And we've COP26 coming up in the UK this year as well. And maybe it's a good time for us to refocus our attention post COVID-19 um, on, on the climate crisis. And therefore, there's going to have to be infrastructure monies put in to, to try and help rebuild the economy anyway. So why not put it into building a green economy and building green infrastructure? You know, so that, that, that will be my focus. Well, those words will resonate with our next guest who has been listening to every word you say, Shea Odukogbe. Welcome to The Lens. How are you, Shay? I'm um, well, thank you. Well, I know that quite a lot of the things we've already talked about are close to your heart. We'll find out why. Uh, first of all, tell us a bit about you. Um, your first ever job was in those uh, kitchens, <laughs> as you say, but uh, but but, it, but in London. Of course, you, you weren't born in London. No, I was born in Lagos, sort of raised in London, and then sharing my, my life in both cities over the years in terms of my career, but also vocations and and also all the activities I've been involved in. It's been a great blend. Yeah, well, um, when Chris talks about his own path, he talks about wanting to do something close to home, an opportunity came up. It seems to me that your attraction towards transport was a bit more deliberate. I just want to unpick that a little bit. You're studying at, <laughs> or you were studying at Queen Mary University. Tell us what was going through your mind. It was somewhat deliberate, but I think the way I stumbled into transport, the genesis of that was was me participating while I was at university uh, in the fellowship program called the Windsor Fellowship. And the Windsor Fellowship is a not-for-profit organization that delivers innovative personal and professional leadership programs for talented, diverse communities and young people. I got on that program and part of the leadership program and part of my fellowship was to have an internship actually with Transport for London during my uh, summer term. And uh, yeah, that was how I stumbled into transport and, you know, just understanding the sheer amount of work that goes into planning and also operating a transport network is immense. From there, I graduated and got a job in a transport consultancy in London. And luckily, they had a lot of projects taking place, you know, across the world. And one is that was in Lagos, which is one to, to develop a bus rapid transit program. Uh, so everything Chris was talking about in terms of, you know, rapid transit and scaling efficient transport uh, really resonate with me. When you say a bus rapid transit, how's that any different to regular buses? It is uh, dedicated in terms of its lane, or most part of the route is, you know, segregated and also has large capacity to transport more people. Um, and I guess in a place like Lagos, where traffic congestion, you know, is, is a big problem, uh, you want to move people around uh, in a cheaper 
comfortable and more efficient way. So these sort of schemes um, are highly efficient, but also transport those that are from more low income and, and not really able to afford traveling widely. Okay, there's there's so many things I want to ask you, but let me start with cycle to class. Yes. This is a fascinating venture. What problem did it set out to solve? Cycle to class really set out to solve one big problem, which is uh, the issue of low quality access of education uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. And we do this by providing bicycles to children in rural communities to enable them to go to school, to be educated and also get the best possible start in life. And, and that actually started from my own personal experience. So about 60 years ago, my, my father grew up in a, a rural community in Nigeria and he had to walk long distance to school. So by chance, by faith, by by luck, you know, he had opportunity to advance his education, but that was not the case for some of his peers or many other people that grew up in such communities. I recall my father telling me a lot of stories about how he had to walk to school. To me, it's a personal story that I felt like I need to do something more for those that are in the remote places and that disconnected and, um, you know, taking my expertise and interest in transport and combining it to obviously education, which I'm highly passionate about for us uh, as an organization and what we've been able to achieve is really giving that access to people that would not have that. And education to me is uh, really, really important and we're doing that. Yeah, and and just so I dig into the problem a bit, um, is what you're doing shrinking the travel time or are you actually unlocking an educational experience that just wouldn't have happened without the bike? We're doing a combination of things. We are increasing access to opportunities for these children and their families. Uh, we're improving attendance to the school. Uh, we're improving their attitude to education, to the self as well. And of course, increasing their aspiration and, and education attainment. And yes, decreasing journey time is part of that. Really powerful. Now, of course, I have to mention that during a, uh, during a national lockdown, um, Children simply haven't been going to school, um, you know, in many countries across the world. Um, have you had to turn your mind to other challenges or do you park cycle to class for now? Interesting question. Um, I mean, we were providing these children a tool to go and get education. And now um, the lockdown also affects every part, even the remote community as well. So we are, you know, in talks of providing some form of remote learning uh, through devices. But that also poses some of the questions because we, we really work in, in where the need is greatest and in most remote communities. So there are the infrastructure challenges such as electricity, you know, having a connectivity. And, and yeah, that's just sort of compounds, you know, even if we want to bring them and give them devices, you know, how, how do they really sustain that? We are looking at other avenues and other organizations that are already in that space and looking at how we can collaborate with them and just do our best finding other means that would work and at least give them some form of learning. Yeah, it's got me thinking, actually, Chris, that we focus on this idea of shrinking a journey time. But what we're really doing is giving somebody back time in another part of their lives. Uh, and, and that's quite a powerful reframe, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, when I was listening to Shay, uh, I was thinking... It's really that cycle to class scheme is a really brilliant example of how transport enables so much more. You know, and we always talk about the social, economic and environmental benefits of transport. You know, given that time back to young people and 
all that they can then do with that time, plus making them more refreshed when they get into school to, to be able to study and to do the things they need to do. Um, powerful example of just how enabling and good transport is. Yeah, it strikes me, Shay, that some of what Chris was talking about earlier about having your fingertips on the data also fascinates you in your entrepreneurial life. Tell us what you're doing with Routemasters. Yeah, uh, with Routemasters, we have a vision to be the largest transport and mobility data platform on the continent of Africa, empowering efficient transport to enable more safe and healthy and obviously more productive lives. What we're essentially doing is then uh, looking at how uh, we can help transport users save time, again, money, and of course, improve their health. The current system is very complex because there's a lack of data analytics uh, which as a transport planner or, or an operator would enable you to plan and improve uh, your, your network. So for someone like Translink and Chris and his team, you know, there's, there's sufficient data that's been generated right now and been mined to make decisions. But in the vast majority of cities in Africa, Lagos, for example, the vast 90% of the entire network is still informal. So mini buses sort of running around and, and could be chaotic sometimes. That means they're un unplanned and unregulated to an extent. Uh, so what we're really doing is, is really trying to <laughs> solve this complex problem by gaining some insight and visibility to what's happening and supporting and empowering, you know, the decision makers in government, for example, but also operators, but also other uh, interesting ventures that want to use mobility data uh, to improve the cities. Uh, so we really creating different sources of data, you know, tapping into sort of telecoms data, um, using sort of Wi-Fi, uh, using sensor data, and consolidating these with other socioeconomic information to be able to bring that uh, level of insight through machine learning. It, it's a really important point, actually, isn't it, Chris, when you think that whatever you're doing is only part of the jigsaw and you could have the best buses and trains and coaches in the world, but if you can't get someone from door to door, then you're risking leaving people disconnected and left behind, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting from a mobility perspective where that data is coming from now, because it's starting to come from, you know, Google and it's coming from people's mobile phones um, and even crowdsourcing. I mean, we introduced a little app, you know, during COVID-19, uh, which now goes on our journey planner. And basically, if you're on a bus or train, you go in and you say, is this bus busy or not? And, and you, you click at the box and it helps other people then to see which service they want to use if one's getting busier. Uh, but to the point maybe that, that you raised as well, Ollie, was the last mile so important? You know, we can provide buses and trains to stations and to, to park and ride, but how do people then get comfortable with the journey from there to their front door? And I think that's where there's a whole myriad of different uh, um, solutions starting to come up, you know, with, with cycling, with e-scooters, with all sorts of technologies. And how do you integrate those then into like a journey planner so somebody can see what all the options are that are available to them. There's still a lot to do on, on transport around data and analytics and giving people information which will help them make good transport choices. Yeah. Listening to Shea's story so far, Chris, what question would you ask him? You know, I'm really interested in this uh, route master and the uh, mobility sort of data platform. You're obviously focusing on a, on a developing region and it's what can we learn from that, from what you've been doing in the development area? What, what do you think? Because you mentioned a lot of different operators there that aren't run by a transport authority and everything else. And sometimes there's benefits in that. And is there something <laughs> we can learn from that in, a, in our sort of developed sort of model? This is the uh, same question I ask myself while I'm working on programs, you know, in UK, for example. I think that sometimes transport is very dynamic and um, I think the pandemic has sort of 
shown us, for example, that you can have a lot of things in plan in place, even data, but really what dictates what is going to change and how mobility pattern is going to change and how people sort of shift mode uh, sometimes is really just organic. And giving room for some of that to sort of happen rather than sort of forcing things just one way, I think is one thing that we see. And just understanding and speaking to people that actually users and what they want to see. Also knowing that while there's an informal structure in place, it doesn't necessarily need to be as formalized as, as it is in Dublin, for example, or London, because the way people live uh, largely sort of informal and how the economy operates. And to the degree when you try to formalize that transport work, then people uh, wouldn't cooperate. Uh, so again, is I guess, giving room to really what our people really leave and what they really want to do. And I guess, yeah, the real users being their active voices that, that will support how you design and change the system. That's some of the things we're learning, not just using data to override the existing system. So, so what does that look like in practice, Chris? Because if you go back to your point around that final mile around e-scooters, that could see a thousand entrepreneurial flowers blooming, couldn't it? And I just wonder whether that's something to embrace, whether that offends some of the more controlling elements of your stakeholder groups. What are you thinking? Yeah, well, there's two thoughts in my mind. We do have this debate quite a, a lot because you know, a, a lot of our engineers and schedulers and everything else, they're designing a system which works operationally. If you mean they're thinking operationally, how do I make this work? Rather than, as you said, um, Shay, it, it's about what's all these informal connections and what does customers really want? So that, you know, that's a thought in my mind, which I'll have to think about a little bit more about how do you bridge that? What's operationally efficient? How do you actually get something which is really meets customers' needs? I, I think technology probably is going to move us this direction anyway. There's this technology which is called mobility as a service. Um, and it's really about saying, look, rather than having your car sitting in your drive and going out and buying your bus or your taxi or your e-bike or whatever, just create a service called mobility. And in that, you can actually choose whatever suits you on a particular day. Uh, and you subscribe to it on a monthly basis. And that subscription gives you access to all the different forms of mobility. And I, I think we shouldn't be afraid of that. I think we should try to embrace that and uh, try to find ways to be a bit more disruptive within transport. One of the many fascinating things, Shay, about Africa as a continent, I guess, is the shifting demographics towards a younger population. Is it on your mind about how that will evolve in terms of attitudes to travel, to transport? A lot of the things Chris is hinting about, I guess. Yes, young people form more than half of that population. And the notion of owning a car will be decreasing. There's a lot of younger population using Uber and other similar ride-hailing apps uh, on the continent. Um, and just knowing that actually being flexible and just being able to move very quickly is more important than, than being stuck in traffic. There's a lot of innovation going on at the moment as well. There's a lot of young people in tech disrupting uh, not just transport, but other sectors. I believe to a degree uh, we'll start seeing similar sort of first or last mile type of mobility um, sort of modes also starting yeah. to, to show up in this part of the world. Shay, what question would you ask Chris based on what you've heard about his journey and story? I think mine would really be from, you know, given more of a leadership question. What are the sort of most important lessons you think you've learned? I have to say there probably isn't one piece of advice, but the one that comes to my mind, certainly from my perspective, is... I suppose a little bit about listening and, and about seeking out advice and, and, and good coaches and mentors. And I worked in a big corporate. There was a lot of really good leaders there, people I could 
talked to, I, I traveled internationally and met lots of good leaders. And I probably didn't realize until I'd actually left Nortel that I'd learned so much from them. And I suppose, you know, now I probably seek out that advice a bit more. Yes, I have a certain amount of experience myself, but there's always people with different experiences and more experiences in different areas. And I sort of tend to seek that out a bit more. And particularly when I have such a big stakeholder group, you, you want to take advice from other people before you go and do something just to make sure that you've considered all the different stakeholders that, that might be interested in what you're doing or might have an opinion on what you're doing. I suppose that would be the advice I would have is to listen and, and seek out advice and seek out support and help and get a couple of good advisors that, you know, that people you can rely on or lift the phone to and say, I just want to have a coffee with you or chew something over with you. Chris, someone listening into this conversation might think, actually, Chris and Sayeh have a lot to learn from each other. So, um, and I'm sure you'll agree with that. What advice do you have to your fellow leaders about how they can learn from, in practical terms, from a younger generation? The first thing that came into my mind when we're starting this conversation was, whenever there's a lockdown lift, I must have a coffee with Say because um, <laughs> I, I'd like to learn about some of the things he's doing. And I, I think we talked about it a little bit. There's so much disruption going on in terms of technology. Young people are, and the next generation are, are really thinking differently about how we do things. They're prepared to, to, to look at things very differently. And I think for people like myself who are trying to you know, look at the direction of, of our organizations going forward. And there's a lot to learn from what young people uh, have to tell us. About a third of our passengers are actually young people. And if I want to keep them on public transport and not head towards getting their driver's license and getting a, getting a car, then you know I've got to have a service which meets their needs. Okay, now my final questions for you both before we go on to our rapid fire. Chris, one for you. Um, your job is one that you could spend every minute of the day or the working day on it, and yet you serve other organizations. You're on the board of business in the community. Um, and I just want to understand what it is about their work that makes you carve out those additional committed minutes and hours? Well, I've been involved with the business community actually for, for quite a long time, uh, off and on. I rejoined or sort of get involved in business community when I joined uh, and TransLink again. It's such a great organization in terms of connecting business to community work. Sometimes business people are working away at their business and they get involved in their stakeholders, but you know they're very focused on that. And what business community does is it sort of breaks that open a bit and says, look, here's some opportunities which you maybe didn't see. Uh, and the whole focus on people, planet and place, I think is really good as well, You know, because it's about, it's about the people, it's about the environment, and it's mm. also about the place that you're working in. And, and it really helps connect businesses to real example. I mean, Again, Shay, you mentioned the cycle to, to class scheme. You know, it's a real practical thing to do that will help. You wouldn't see that if you were just sitting in your business every day. But business community can look these things out and can bring them to you and say, look, here's how you can use your skills to actually make a real contribution to the community. Good. Well, that's why we were so happy to get you as a guest. And I know how the team talk about your drive with such warmth on that. So thank you for all that you've done on that. Say, so, I have a related question for you. We met through One Young World, our fantastic partner for The Lens. You're involved in the World Economic Forum as a global shaper. I guess my question is, for someone so connected with their peers across the world, when it comes to these sorts of gatherings, do we still need to travel around? Do we still need to be in a room with people? Yeah, 2020 has brought different challenges, but, but also many opportunities uh, has evolved and improved on how we connect. 
I like the fact that we are, you know, talking on Teams or on different networks, but there's still a place uh, of grabbing that coffee. I think it's nice to start off over the phone, over Zoom and over Teams or Google. Uh, but uh, I guess that the next step then is really connecting in person. And I think that that is uh, really powerful. I think people will want to get back to that after COVID-19. It brings me uh, very nicely to my final questions for you both. Um, you're not allowed to name each other in the first one, which is who you would most like to have coffee with. And they've got to be still alive. So let's start with um, you, say, and then Chris. I'd like to uh, have coffee with Carla Aris. Carla is a vice chairman of wealth management and, and senior client advisor at Morgan Stanley. Carla has been instrumental in the way I've made certain choices in my career. And I know that she's done this for so many other people as well. She is someone who has also supported improving access to capital for females and also multicultural founders like myself. For that, I, I would really like to sit down and learn more from her. Excellent. Chris? Mine is Angela Merkel. She's the longest serving head of government in the EU. Uh, and she had a very interesting career. She was a scientist originally, and, and then she was the Minister for the Environment, the Minister for Youth, and the Minister for Women, all during her career as well. And I, I think specifically why she comes to my mind is I think the humanitarian stance she took during the refugee crisis was, was incredible and very brave, probably has damaged her politically. Um, but was a very brave decision. And I think she would be you know, well worth having a coffee with. It's a great choice. Thank you. Now, how about books? Uh, it doesn't have to be a business book, but just one that you think is worthy of a wider audience. Chris? Um, yeah, I, I try to think of a book that maybe didn't have as wide an audience. Uh, and the book I came up with was a, a book called Unbroken. Um, now, people may have seen the film because um, there has been a film produced on this as well. Um, and it's a, it's a true life story of a, a U.S. Army. And it's, a, it's an officer who was a U.S. Olympian prior to the Second World War. Uh, and then they ended up caught up in the Second World War. And it's the whole story of survival and resilience and, and how he achieved that. Thank you, Chris. Shea, what is on your bookshelf? A um, book I recommend is uh, Factfulness uh, by Hans Rowling. Uh, I read this uh, a couple of years back and really so sort of challenges the notion of how the world works and so sort of challenges us to be more fact-based uh, on world views. An excellent choice. Totally agree in terms of uh, taking a fresh look at the world around us. Excellent choice. My final question to you both, a piece of advice to your former self. Where are we going back to? Which age? Um, I see you laughing, Shay. Let's have your... Advice to your former self, be as kind, as punchy, as direct as you like. Where are we going and what do you say? Uh, it would be, it's not possible to do everything perfectly. So just focus on time and energy and, and what you think is really important. And also grabbing the chances and opportunities and, and running with them and not being afraid of, of trying anything that is new. Excellent advice. There's a lovely line. David Allen says, you can do anything you want, but not everything. Uh, so something rather lovely in that. Thank you, Shea. Chris, where are we going back to and what do you say? Uh, well, I suppose I've, I've gone back to uh, my early 20s, I suppose, just after I'd left university. My advice would be to, to listen more and, and to seek out advice. Um, I probably at that age would have looked at people my current age and said, He's nothing to offer me, you know. <laughs> you know, you know. He, he's. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I, I can do it differently, or I. I can do it my own way. Maybe it would have helped me not to go down so many. Uh, so many sort of uh, blind alleys sometimes, and and uh, I find my way through a little bit quicker. It's excellent advice. And on that 
theme of listening more, let me say a huge thank you to you, Chris Conway, to you, Shea Odukogbe, and uh, to you, our listener, because uh, this is our final episode of Series 3. And in the spirit of listening more, I hope it will give you the inspiration to explore all of the episodes, because, of course, behind the microphone on every one of them is a whole host of fascinating guests who I have absolutely loved meeting and interviewing uh, in real life. It's been an absolute honour. So thank you, Chris. Thank you, Shay. And thank you to you, our listener. We wouldn't have done any of this without your encouragement and support. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. On a very personal note, after three series, this is my final episode of The Lens. But it's not the final episode of The Lens, which will, of course, continue with a spring in its step into series four and beyond. I want to say a massive thank you to you for listening, whether this is your first episode or whether you're a regular listener. Thank you to every single guest who's appeared and to the whole team at Business and the Community, at McCann, at One Young World, and of course, at home, who have supported me every step of the way. These have been some of the most interesting and inspiring encounters of my life, and I shall miss The Lens enormously. You've been listening to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. If you like what you've heard, then please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps and makes a difference. Thank you. Also, we're on Instagram at The Lens Podcast or on the Business in the Community website. The Lens is produced and directed by Aurelia Salitskater, music and editing by Giselle Hall and Will Francis, and our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye.